Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Again, my name is Tyler. I'm on staff at uh, Coa Brookline. Um, I was with you guys a few months ago when we were still in the book of James, and I think I say this every time I'm here, but I'm going to continue to say it. Um, I just love you guys. Uh, For a number of reasons, personally, um, a number of you were uh, attending Coa Brookline at the time I was there and was in the same community group as so many of you. Um, And so there's a deep love for you all in that way. Um, And then I have a pastor's meeting with with Aaron and and Kyle. And so just the past like three to four years, I've just heard over and over again, um, various updates, how you guys have just been faithful and um, just how God is using you as a church. Um, through a pandemic, right? I think you guys launched and then not even eight months later, you're in a pandemic and you have not been back in Brighton since until next week. Ooh, yeah. So again, glad to be here. Um, honored to be here. Uh, excited for our time today. Uh, if you've been tracking with us this summer, we've been in the book of James and it's been said a couple of times from the pulpit or maybe you picked up on it just from reading yourself. Um, James says a lot of difficult things. Right? James says a lot of things that are really hard to hear. Um, James, in some ways, kind of just like punches you in the mouth. Right? He says um, a lot of things that we don't want to hear, but things that we really need to hear. And so last week, if you were here, James kind of put ungodly rich people on blast. Right? He said, it's not a, a sin to be rich, but to use your wealth, to use your riches to oppress other people and use them in ungodly ways, that's, that's sinful, that's wrong. That's something God disapproves of. And he goes so far as to use the verbiage that, that those people should weep and howl for the miseries that are coming their way. And so he uses this really strong language to point out how serious this is. And then he transitions to our verse that we just read, and he talks about um, these Christians who are being oppressed, these Christians who are suffering. And if, if you read it closely, it kind of seems like they're probably suffering because of the rich people oppressing them. And James, in the middle of suffering, brings up this idea of patience. Patience. Now, I think uh, most, if not all of us, would agree that patience is a good thing, right? Patience is something that, that we ought to want to have. And I think of uh, some of the most content, satisfied people I know, they're oftentimes the most patient people I know, too. And what's funny is you observe the world around us, you kind of uh, look at how your life is structured, uh, almost nothing is designed to make you be patient, right? It's, it's a muscle that we flex very little, Right, so you no longer have to get in your car and drive to Blockbuster and pick out the movie and go home and watch the previews to get to the movie, right? And God forbid someone who rented it before you didn't rewind the, the, the tape, but you just stream it instantly on any of your like 10 devices, right? You want the answer to almost any question in the world. You just kind of like glance down at your Apple Watch and ask Siri and boom, you got it in like five seconds or less. Right, think, about, think about how far we've come in that area. Anyone remember um, Cha Cha? No, a couple nods. Yeah, cha-cha. So cha-cha was this texting service. You text any question you want to 242-242. And this is before we all had smartphones. And it would go to uh, literally a, a live breathing person. And they would ironically probably Google your question and then text you back like two to three minutes later with an answer. Right? That texting service is completely obsolete now, completely unnecessary. In part, because there's a quicker way. In part, because something like that, we see that and we say, I have to be patient. And if there's a quicker way, I'm going to do that. And fully acknowledging, like, I'm glad that I don't have to use cha-cha anymore. I'm glad I can Google things. But regardless, the point remains the same, that our lives are structured to not need patience. We say patience is a good thing, 
We say patience is a virtue we ought to have, but we do not set up our lives in any way that we have to be patient. And it's interesting, as I was thinking about this these past two weeks, there's kind of one area of life, one kind of circumstance, one kind of thing in which uh, uh, being impatient or trying to find a shortcut will do you no good. And and there's no way to get through this one thing and come out the other side uh, uh, being better off if you're impatient. And that's suffering. Suffering. But we try to. Right, the first step of the grieving process is denial. And I think, and, and yes, it's this, you go through something traumatic and, and it's kind of a shock and so you have to process it. So you kind of, you just initially deny, but I think it's also in part because we look at something that happened and we say, getting through that, processing through that, that's gonna take a lot of patience. And I'm probably better off just kind of denying that that even happened, right? Uh, my wife and I, Ashley, we had an extreme extremely blunt reminder of, of how important patience is two weeks ago when we moved, right? Moving in the city, as I'm sure most of you know, just sucks. September 1st, that's why you got to help out. Um, and so we were moving a couple Sundays ago, and, and this was a Sunday after church, and so I'm already tired. Um, and from about 1230 onward, absolutely everything that could have gone wrong kind of did, right? So we pull up into the rental truck company area thing, and, and I immediately see, okay, there's, there's clearly not a truck the size that we reserved in this parking lot. They're all very small. Okay, well, you know what, we're early, maybe there's a reservation that's going to return theirs in a minute, and I walk up to the counter and give them my reservation number, and they say, oh, actually, you're scheduled to pick up 10 miles from here. I go, what? Just scrolling through my email, that's not right. Show them, that's my reservation. Like, oh, let me see, let me see. Oh, we, we changed your reservation, we just didn't tell you. Not only did we not tell you that the pickup location is now 10 miles away, we also changed your 20-foot uh, cargo, 20-foot uh, truck down to a cargo van. We didn't tell you that either, right? And on top of this, um, someone uh, uh, just volunteered to watch our, our, my wife and I's daughter, Adelina, and um, so we were going to take her there for the afternoon and the evening, so plenty of time to not just move, but maybe even unpack some, and Ashlyn's on the way there um, to this person's place, and there's literally a parade happening like around her house. And so Ashlyn can't even get within a mile to this person's house. And uh, she just drives around for like 45 minutes, an hour, ends up at the same place she started and just heads home. And so uh, eventually we made it. Um, We had a lot of friends that helped us, two cargo vans and five SUV trucks later and a a random friend uh, volunteering to watch Addie. We we made it. But the thing is, every, uh, everything in that scenario, every bone in my body screamed, you have a right, Tyler, to be impatient. You have a right to not be patient right now. If you blew up, I'd get it. I'd cheer that on. I'd be like, yeah. And the thing is, we can so easily admit that we have a right to be impatient, but fail to say that actually, the best thing in that scenario is patience. The best thing for you to do in a circumstance like that is be patient. And so it's interesting that, that just this context of suffering, this idea of patience. James, look at these Christians that are suffering, and he says, be patient. Be patient in suffering because God is in control. And that's kind of our main idea, uh, uh, main point for today. You, Christian, can be patient because God is in control. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, just, just consider this. As you hear the words that that Kyle read, as you hear this sermon, consider what is God offering you through Jesus? What is God offering you through this passage in terms of suffering and in terms of patience? And compare that to your support system now in suffering. How does that compare?
And before I lay out a, a roadmap of kind of where we're headed, just a quick note about suffering, because I would hate for anyone to walk in here and think, because they don't have something massive going on in their life, that they aren't suffering. Because right? there's kind of two sides to the coin of suffering. There's the, the more obvious things like divorce, job loss, uh, illness, death, that, that we would look at and say, okay, this is obviously suffering. But I, I think we would be selling God's work short in the way he works through things if we didn't also say, a rough season at work, a tough relationship with your boss, uh, relational issues between roommates, between kids, between spouses. These, these are forms of suffering too. They might be less obvious, but they're no less real. And so I, I think, again, don't come in here thinking that because you're not suffering in an obvious way that this text doesn't have anything to say to you. Right? It speaks to both sides of the coin. You know, you come in here, you got your heavy boots on, you're going through it. This text has something to say. God has something to say. You come in here and you think, I'm not suffering in any massive way, but you are, you just don't see it, and it's not any less real. This text has something to say. God has something to say. Uh, Michael Emlett, he's a, a biblical counselor. He wrote a book called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. And, and his thesis, in short, was you are all three of those things at the same time. You are experiencing all three of those things at the same time. Experiencing what it means to be a saint, experiencing what it means to be a sufferer, experiencing what it means to be a sinner. And so I say all this, again, just to emphasize, we are all suffering in some way, shape, or form. So again, big idea. You, Christian, can be patient in suffering because God is in control. And we're going to look at this in two simple ways, just two simple ways. Why and how. Why? Why should we be patient? Another way to ask that is, is what kind of hope do we have in patience? In what ways is, is God in control in our suffering and in our, our pursuit of patience? And, and second, how? How should we be patient? James lays out a couple of things that, that we, we shouldn't do and, and um, lays out a couple of ways we should conduct ourselves in the way we are patient in suffering. So we're going to look at three whys and two hows. So first why. James gives us three reasons, and those are God has done something, God is doing something, and God will do something. Um, you have to bear with me. We're going to kind of jump around the text. We're not going to go straight through. Um, so look at verses 10 and 11 with me again. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in other words, James is saying two things, right? He's saying, look at the prophets, prophets. Look at how uh, they suffered. Look at how they handled it. And then look what God did, right? Look what God did through those things. And the prophets, if you don't know anything about them, there's the, there are these uh, uh, characters in the Old Testament um, that, that they didn't live lives that we would envy in almost any way, right? I don't know, other than maybe like their obedience to the Lord some of the time, I don't know anyone that reads the story about the life of a prophet and goes, I want to replicate that, right? And on top of this, uh, James throws out Job. At first glance, if I'm trying to encourage someone, the book of Job is not the person I typically go to. Right? That's not the first thing I go to. But James, in his wisdom, um, provides Job as this an example. And, and, and Job, if you didn't know, um, he's in the Old Testament, and, and he's a man of, of great wealth and great riches, and um, he has a, a, a family, and, and, and most of all, he's upright before God and, 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 and in God's favor. And then all of a sudden, just like that, he loses everything. Right? His, his riches are stripped away. His, his family is taken away. 
He gets skin illnesses. He, his friends come to uh, attempt to comfort him, but they um, ultimately end up kind of demeaning him and, and accusing him. And although Job, he didn't handle the situation perfectly, he didn't misstep, or he didn't not misstep in some ways, he did misstep in some ways, he still endured pretty well. He was still relatively steadfast. And though he had his moments, he still trusted God for the most part throughout the process. And we know we have the last five chapters of Job. We know that, that God rewards that, that God uh, blesses him more than he had previously. He gets his wealth back. He gets his land back. He gets his family back, right? He endured pretty well. Take someone like Jeremiah, another prophet. They call him the weeping prophet because he's weeping all the time. And uh, Jeremiah's story is super interesting. Um, essentially, uh, God calls Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb before you were born. Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart to be a great prophet. And Jeremiah's like, oh, me? Okay, okay. God goes on and, and tells Jeremiah that he chosen to be set over nations and kingdoms, both to destroy and to build up. All right, yeah, I can do that. You know, building up some kingdoms, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God looks at Jeremiah and says, go tell your people, go tell your king that they're about to be utterly destroyed. They're about to be completely enslaved. The whole land will be a desolation. The earth will mourn and the heavens will be dark. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I was thinking like, God, remember when you did that like bread from heaven and like you split that ocean and like, I was thinking we could do some of those things again. But this is, that was the message that God tasked Jeremiah with relaying to his people. And so for years and years and years, Jeremiah is just uh, uh, relaying this message over and over in different ways and different shapes and different forms to, to God's people. And no one's listening to him. And I have to imagine he didn't want to be patient. I have to imagine he was probably frustrated with God at times. But we can look back on this in such a way that it encourages us in our pursuit to be patient in suffering. Because Jeremiah wasn't able to see what became of his, his, his prophetic words and what became of his life, but he has a book in the Bible, right? He has, he has a book in, in the word of God that is going to endure till the end of time, right? And so although Jeremiah couldn't see it, he was patient in his suffering and God did something. He did something. And, and even more than that, in Jeremiah's story, if, if, if you picked up on bits and pieces, so essentially um, the, God's people uh, were a nation and, and the prophecy that was given to Jeremiah was that this other nation, Babylon, was going to come in, enslave them, and, and, and God's, God's kingdom, God's country would kind of be no more. And so uh, Jeremiah, he has a relationship with the king at the time this happened. The king's name was Jehoiakim. And he's telling Jehoiakim these things and, and Jehoiakim, he's not listening. And eventually that thing happens. Babylon comes in. They enslave Jehoiakim. They enslave all, his, all, their, all their people and, and take them away. And what's interesting is extra biblical historical sources say that Jehoiakim was actually isolated from his people. So he wasn't kept with the rest of his people. He was isolated from his people, isolated from his wife. And a couple of things hung in the balance, right? His ability to have a family hung in the balance. He was, he was a younger, younger king. He didn't have a family yet. His ability to carry on his line hung in the balance. But God did something. And what happened was Jehoiakim eventually found favor with the queen of Babylon, who influenced the king of Babylon, and they allowed Jehoiakim's wife to join him in isolation. What do they do? They have children. And one of their children's name is Shealtiel. 
And now why is this, what does this have to do with anything? Because if you trace his line all the way down, goes from Shealtiel to one to one to one, all the way down to a man named Mathan. Mathan fathered a man named Joseph. Sorry, Mathan fathered a man named Jacob, and then Jacob fathered Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Jesus. And so the question is, do you think Jeremiah knew? Do you think God's people knew that in the middle of their suffering, he was bringing about their savior? And so in Jeremiah's patience, in Jeremiah's suffering, in the suffering of God's people, God did something. And again, that encourages us today, here and now, not just that God did something, but that God is doing something. God is doing something. A good contemplative question I ask myself, I wish I asked myself more, is what is God doing in my life? And some of you maybe ask that question and you immediately have something, but for most of us, I would say we probably don't, right? We aren't quite sure. And I think in part, that's because we're visual creatures, right? The way we see and interpret things is, is based on uh, just what, what our eyes see, right? How do I know this stand is, is sturdy enough to hold my iPad? Well, it's because I, I see that the metal is probably of good quality. I can see that these are tight. I can feel this. And so I know, okay, I trust this stand to hold my iPad because I can see it, because I can feel it. And then we often expect the same thing of God, right? So we say, God, I can't see you working. God, I can't feel you working. You're not working. God, I can't, I just, I don't sense you. I don't see you in this situation. You're not doing anything. Right, but look at the illustration that James gives because scripture refutes that idea entirely. Right, he talks about that of a of, of, of farmer and fruit. Did you know fruit trees, some fruit trees take 15 years after they're planted till they start bearing fruit? And it's, it's funny, like we, we take a trip to a farm or, or something or somewhere there's a bunch of plants and uh, uh, the farmer there says, yeah, I just put a bunch of seed in the ground and they're going to sprout and be trees. What we don't do in that moment is actually question what's happening. We can't see it, but we know something's happening, right? We can't see the seed. We can't see it growing yet, but we know, we know that the seed is growing and the seed's going to sprout soon. But we don't do the same thing with God. This very thing led John Piper to say, God may be doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. But for most of us, it's God may be doing 10,000 things in your life. You're not aware of any of them. So the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about that? I think Paul in 2 Corinthians begins to give us a really good answer. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So though our outer self is wasting away, though we're suffering, though we're dying, though we're wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God is doing something. Though we're suffering, God is doing something. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, this part's the most important part. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So you're suffering. You don't know why. You have a a chronic illness that doesn't allow you to enjoy life to the fullest the way you want to and enjoy life the way other people around you are. 
right? You, you, you think you've been following God's calling on your life and, and you keep taking step after step after step, but all of a sudden it's really painful and you didn't expect that to happen. The scripture says, don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. The things that are, are hard to feel and see, but we have to trust in faith that they're there. The Lord's compassion, the Lord's mercy. Again, look at verse 11. It says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's interesting that, that James is talking about the prophets in past tense, but he doesn't say God was compassionate and merciful. He says God is compassionate and merciful. And so that means in your darkest moments, in your various struggles, in your various sufferings, you can say God is compassionate and merciful. You can say God is doing something, even if I can't see it. God did something, God is doing something, and God will do something. You can be patient in suffering because God will do something. What is he going to do? He's going to come back. He's going to come back for you. Again, I mentioned earlier, Ashlyn and I have a seven-month-old daughter, and um, she's getting all kinds of mobile lately. Um, she started crawling the other week. Shout out to Addie for crawling. Uh, and um, it's interesting, like uh, just filtering all the parental advice we've gotten like the past year, like one thing that keeps coming up is like, just wait till they're mobile. And I'm always like, I get it. She's going to move. Like, yeah. But what I didn't realize is that what that actually means is that she's just a danger to herself 24-7, right? She's just completely uncoordinated. And um, one of her favorite times to be mobile is when she's in her crib and should be sleeping. Um, and last week, uh, we have a, a, a video camera in her room so we can pull it up on our phone. And I hear her kind of moving around. And so I pull up the camera and this, this, this child, this, this seven-month-old child, has her feet like planted in the middle of the mattress, standing up, arms extended, holding onto the crib kind of like, like this, right? And I don't know what, what gave first like whether it was her legs or her arms, but this child just like belly flopped and just like smacked her head. And just like, it looked really painful actually. Like I think I would have been hurting from that kind of fall too. And um, she like, you know, if you know, you know, she has that brief moment where she's like, am I, am I okay? And then she's like, nah. And so she just like loses it and she starts crying and she starts screaming and, and she's in a lot of pain and she's suffering. And uh, I, I get up and, and I run over there, of course. And what am I thinking as I'm going over there? It's not, don't worry, Addie. Someone who's strong enough to lift you out of your crib, someone who has the strength to get you out of that situation, someone who knows you're hurting and knows you can't do anything about it is coming. No, what I'm thinking is, don't worry, Addie. Your dad is coming. What I'm thinking is, don't worry, Addie. Someone who loves you is coming. And so I know that some of you in here are suffering greatly. Whether it's illness, whether it's uh, uh, loneliness, whether it's, again, like you just feel like the Lord's put this calling on your life to, to care for people that society is inclined not to. And then all of a sudden that's really hard. You're suffering. But the scripture says that God is coming back for you. The scripture says that Lord Jesus, the one who uh, suffered for you, that lived a perfect life for you, that died for you and then rose from the dead for you, all because he loves you and because he is worthy of your praise. He is the one coming back for you. 
So be patient. Hold on just a little longer. You can be patient in suffering because God is coming back. The last thing I want to talk about, um, and we won't spend as long talking about this, but the two hows of patience and suffering that James gives. Um, He prohibits kind of two things, right? Two things that we so easily do while we're trying to be patient. Two things we so easily do in impatience, right? And that's grumbling in verse nine and swearing in verse 12. So you might've noticed James so far, he has this kind of odd knack of like calling out sins that you and I might consider kind of minor, right? Grumbling, swearing, he's called out favoritism. He's called out controlling your tongue. He's called out uh, uh, assuming that tomorrow is something that you control. He's called out um, an inability to, to manage your finances well. He's called these things out. And to be honest, like when I read them, I'm like, okay, that's not like, that's not a good idea to kind of rank sins, but that's not first tier sin, right? That's not second tier sin. Maybe, maybe like some of those things are like third level sins, right? But he calls all these out and reminds us that no sin is small when it's against a holy God, right? And he talks about grumbling and taking an oath. Verse nine, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. For honest, grumbling is easy, right? The word grumble translates as sigh deeply or groan in what? Impatience, of course, groan in impatience. And then James adds against one another. So in other words, don't complain about one another. And there's a fair amount of debate among scholars, like what are these two things, groaning and, and taking an oath, what are they doing here? They're kind of, they're kind of out of place, right? We're talking about like this big idea of like patience and, and suffering and these big things. Why are you mentioning, mentioning grumbling and taking an oath? But I think we can acknowledge in part that groaning is actually an act of impatience. Right, so James is in part saying, be patient, but avoid impatient, impatience by not grumbling. But it's so easy, right? We use the phrase, can I just vent for a minute? And we think that absolves us of like any kind of responsibility. And then we take it too far because we go from no longer desiring godly wise counsel about a person or a situation because we go uh, beyond the need to process in any healthy manner. And we take it to the point where, oh, I want to complain about this person. And I want the end result of that conversation to you to have a certain negative view about this person. I had, um, it's funny, I actually had someone come up to me today because we preached this text last week at Brookline and he asked me, well, what about, what about therapy? What about counseling? Like, that was a really good question. Um, and, and I think it's important when you think about grumbling and, and there's such a, a thin line between grumbling and like processing in a healthy way, you have to ask yourself, what is the motivation and the end goal of what you're discussing? Right? Because in therapy, your, your, your motivation and your end goal, they're both to process through this in a healthy way, to work through something traumatic, to improve the way you're seeing a situation, to understand what's going on. Right, the motivation or end goal in therapy or counseling would not be to groan and grumble about a particular person. Any trained therapist or counselor would tell you, yes, you need a space to process these things and talk about these things, but for you to groan and complain about someone and then hold on to that, that's not good. James says, don't grumble. And to remind us of how serious this is, he tells us that this incurs the judgment of God. 
And sometimes I wish James was a little more like Paul, right? Paul, Paul says that um, the idolaters, the adulterers, and the thieves, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we kind of get that, right? We, we kind of get that. We're kind of on board with that. But grumbling, the judgment of God, swearing, taking an oath, condemnation, what? And again, it's a reminder that any sin is not small. No sin is small compared to a holy, perfect God. And I'm both, I'm just personally convinced that one of Satan's favorite things is when God's people minimize their sin. When God's people say, this is not a big deal because it's not like this sin, right? I'm not going out and doing that. I mean, that other person is, but I'm not. And then hence, that's a, that's a little bit of grumbling and gossip, Right? James reminds us there's no such thing as small sin. And he goes on to tell us in verse 12, not to swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes or your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, if grumbling seemed out of place, this one certainly seems out of place in the context of everything we just read, right? Like, like James, you're talking about patience. You're talking about suffering. What, is, what does this have to do with anything? What is going on here? And I think just as grumbling intertwines with patience, if you think about it a little deeply, so does this idea of of, of taking an oath. So does this idea of kind of swearing, right? And these words, if you kind of grew up in church, or even if you were with us like a year or two ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, they might sound familiar to you because Jesus said something really similar. And it's actually interesting. um, A a lot of James, uh, he uses a lot from the Sermon on the Mount. And so a lot of scholars actually think he probably had a copy of it in front of him or just really ingrained in his memory. Um, but Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So again, this is confusing, right? Like James, are you saying, are you saying I can't go into a court of law under oath and say anything? But no, the answer is no. James is not saying that, Right? But what he is saying, what I think he is saying is as much as you are able, as much as it is in your control, don't let the truth of your statement, don't let the integrity of your character be dependent on an oath. Don't let the truth of your statement, the integrity of your character be dependent on you swearing or promising something. Right? In other words, it shouldn't matter whether you take an oath because your words should be truthful either way. It shouldn't matter whether you take an oath because you should be of upright character either way. And now how this ties into patience, again, just, it, it's, it's hard to see at the first like look, right? But I think, I wonder how many of us in some way, shape or form, whether consciously or unconsciously have said, God, I swear, I promise, if you do this, I will worship you for my whole life. God, if you give me this, I will follow you. I swear, I promise. And what that's actually doing is just trying to, you're being impatient, right? You're trying to shortcut something. You're trying to get something quicker. And James says, don't do that. And once again, reminding us of the weightiness of every sin James tells us that if we swear in ways like that, we fall under condemnation. Right now, does that mean if you grumble, the second you grumble or the second you take an oath, that you're judged by God or that you're under condemnation? For those of us that are in Christ, no. 
for those of us that are in Christ, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy, right? The scripture says that our life is hidden with Christ. The scripture says that, that, that Jesus' blood covers our sin. What the scripture also says, ironically in James 1, what the scripture also says that, that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So in other words, grumbling, swearing, they might not be the full tree, but they're certainly the seed. Right? They might not be the fully grown sin, but they're f- certainly the start. And grumbling and swearing, when they're fully realized, when they've taken full hold, they bring about death. Jesus talks about this uh, as well when he talks about, compares um, hating your brother with murder. When he compares uh, lusting with your eyes to committing adultery. Right? That kind of paints a clearer picture of what's going on here. In our attempts to be patient in suffering, don't grumble. Don't swear. Don't take an oath. Don't try to get out of things quicker. As we close we leave here thinking about this idea of, of being patient and suffering. We need to just acknowledge that it's not easy, right? Just because you're able to exude patience in a certain situation doesn't make your suffering any less real. It doesn't make your suffering any easier. But what it does is allows you to pause and it allows you to ask God, what are you doing? What are you up to? And, and remember, it's not intuitive, right? Patience is not a muscle we flex very often. And so it takes some level of intentionality to stop and pray and ask God, what are you doing? This hurts. What are you doing? And God, if you don't show me, I'm going to trust you anyways. Because I can look back at people that have suffered for God before and people that have been patient in suffering before. And I see that you did something. And I can trust that now, that even though I can't see it, I'm going to trust that you are doing something now. And I'm going to trust that you're going to come back. You're going to come back for me. And when you do, you will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither will no mourning. There will be no more crying because the former things are passing away. Because the things that cause suffering, the things that cause pain, they are passing away. And I'm going to trust that. You can be patient in suffering because God is in control. <laughs>